1: Welcome
0: to the New Books Network. So, welcome to another episode of New Books Network. Um, my name is Roland Clark, and it's my pleasure to be speaking today to James Capello and Kinga Povodak about their new book, The Secret Police and the Religious Underground in Communist and Post-Communist Eastern Europe, which has recently appeared with Routledge. James is a senior lecturer in the study of religions at University College Cork in Ireland, He's the author of Text, Context and Performance, Gagawa's Folk, Religion and Discourse and Practice, and most recently, Innocentism and Orthodox Christianity, Religious Descent in the Russian and Romanian Borderlands. Kinga is a research fellow in the Convivence Religious Pluralism Research Group at the University of Skaget in Hungary. She's edited Dance, Age and Politics, and is the author of a recent monograph on popular Christian music called Guitar Apostles. So James and Kinga, The Secret Police and Religious Underground, brings together 16 different authors. How did you all get to know each other?
2: Yes, well, thank you very much. Uh, um, Well, some some of the authors uh, of this volume come from an ERC-funded project which was headed uh, by James. And the title of the project uh, is Creative Agency and Religious Minorities – Hidden Galleries in the Secret Police Archives in Central and Eastern Europe. And this project has just ended uh, earlier this year. And uh, so a part of the authors uh, for, for the volume um, were actually members of this project team. And uh, towards the beginning of the project in uh, 2017, we uh, organized an international workshop. In, uh, in the secret police archives in Budapest. And um, and um, in this uh, workshop, um, which was uh, it was entitled uh, Materializing Religion in the Secret Police Archive Methodological, Ethical, and Legal Approaches to the Study of Religions in Secret Police uh, Archives. And the uh, so in this workshop, it was uh, our intention to um, include and to invite uh, scholars from Central and Eastern Europe who already um, had uh, kind of an expertise in um, in researching religions uh, through secret police uh, archival materials and. Uh, and who already had this uh, this angle that that their research uh, could really contribute to the study of religion so 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 that was another addition to the group of authors we included uh, most of the workshop participants also in the book and uh well finally then uh, we invited some other researchers uh Actually, in the process of of editing the volume, in order to to fill um, uh, to fill in what uh, James and I found were kind of blind spots and and needed to be somehow covered uh, in the book. So so eventually, we ended up uh, uh, with this list of authors in the book. Um, that really covers um, a nice and diverse uh, group of scholars. Uh, So we have contributions in this volume from historians, also from scholars of religions, but also from ethnographers and anthropologists.
0: Yeah, one of the things I really liked about it when I first picked it up was was how interdisciplinary it is and how it, it jumps from one country to another, and one time period to another, and it really draws together themes uh, across a large region. Um, but when I, when I first saw the book, it's got this title, Religious Underground. And to me, the, the term Religious Underground made me think of people worshiping in temples or churches that they dug underground, uh, which sounds a bit extreme. Did that really happen? Um, what exactly was the Religious Underground?
3: Um, thanks roland that's a that's a really uh, important question and um of course you know that it did happen um uh, people dig dig um literal underground spaces in which to worship and also to to hide or or to um set up underground printing pressing so there is a a kind of literal dimension if you like to to the underground in that sense um but it was much more than that. Um, it, the, the, the term underground operated as a really powerful metaphor, a metaphor that was actually lived by uh, for for um, for religious communities that experienced uh, communist repression and also repression in the period before that. So, I mean, Christian history is littered, littered with um, examples of such phenomena of, of underground spaces. Um, and we only have to think about you know the, the idea of catacomb um uh churches for example but um yeah the, the the we chose to use the term religious underground in the title because this metaphor which had a, also had a material reality um was um mobilized or put into effect um by both sides in the cold war so the term itself goes back to the 1920s, early Soviet discourses, and one of the papers in the in the book deals with that. Tatiana Vagromenko talks about the reality effect of the discursive regime of truth that produced the idea of the religious underground and how that caused it to, to come into existence in a sense. But it was also a powerful um, metaphor that was used in the West and was um, you know, propagated through kind of radio-free Europe and 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 especially in America and 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 uh, and UK, um, UK uh, propaganda during the Cold War um, that projected an idea of the released underground as as you know this valiant um, um, group of priests and pastors that evaded arrest. That um, you know managed to um, uh, uh, combat the 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 the, um, the efforts of the of the Soviet regime and the later communist regimes to, to undermine um, religion. So this was really what captured our imagination in in, in the book, that this um, the dialogical relationship, if you like, between the actions of the state, the repressive actions of the state, and the generation of this underground that was both a material reality, a spatial lived material reality for religious communities, but also this powerful metaphor that was that came into being and had to be lived by by, by communities and, and shaped by powerful discourses on both sides of the Cold War.
0: Um, as you just said, there's, there's several actors, several types of actors in this book. There's religious people themselves, and then there's the secret policemen and the authorities who are uh, investigating them all the time, but also in the book there's a constant mesh, um, reference to files and archives left, left by the secret police. Um, how is working with archives produced by secret police different to working with other types of archival sources?
3: Um, well, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, there are some, in, some, some really important differences. The first one that we should... Really, uh, refer to is uh, is the is the idea that the you know the secret police archives is essentially a, a hostile archive, a hostile archive that was uh, generated in the very process of attempting to destroy the the, the 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 object of the archive, which was which was religion in society, religious communities. Um, so, in that sense, um, it's different from other archives. You know, it was not. Um, you know, even, even colonial archives, to a sense, would record a version of events that they wished to be preserved for posterity on which history could be based. So often the virtuous activities of people in society and individuals and institutions get captured in archives, whereas the Secret police Archives is an example of an archive of what the regime viewed to be uh, unvirtuous um, or lacking in, lacking in virtue, if you like. Um, And the other important factor is, of course, that the secret police archives were never intended to be viewed by anyone else other than the secret police themselves. So they have a very peculiar um, form that is um, kind of um, introspective in the sense that it was a discursive frame, um, a material frame that was for use by the secret police and by the secret police alone, of course. The secret piece communicated with other, with other um, institutions, with other state bodies. And so the archive, you know, the traces of the archive extend out into, into the ministries and, and different um, state agencies and so on. But essentially it was an archive for, for the secret piece's own use and their own uh, purposes. So it's, it's you know, what we find in there, the evidential status, if you like, of what we find in there has this peculiar, um, peculiar quality. Um, and we always have to be very careful when looking at secret police archival sources um, to understand um, how they were generated, um, you know, um, and what was masked um, in, in the creation of those of those files. But interestingly, for a scholar working today in the secret police archives, um, what I think is probably one of the most Im- important uh, factors that make working in those archives different from others is the peculiarly powerful role that the archives play in contemporary society, in post-communist society and in public discourse. So they were the, the, the archives have been used for the processes of transitional justice, for illustration, or vetting of people for, for public life, for for some criminal case file uh, criminal cases against um, uh, former communist uh, leaders and uh, and so on, um, and for the, this whole process of kind of reckoning, um, one of the important things that happened in East Central Europe is that ordinary citizens were given access to their own uh, personal files, and this is. A, Something peculiar in in kind of global transitional um, transitional justice uh, kind of measures that that, that that should happen, and so the scholar working in those archives is kind of drawn into uh, a, a set of powerful public discourses and ideas about truth and justice um, that perhaps um, uh, make that endeavor different to to to, to working in a, in, a, in an ordinary archive so history writing um ethnography in the archive anthropology in the archive is constantly in dialogue with this powerful public um consciousness um about the archive um you know ideas that you know uh that were live in communism sheila fitzpatrick has written about this that um you know the the true Biography of every individual is is in the file. Their true life is in the file, rather than the life they actually lived or the life that they re, They remember that it's the perfect biography, um, and that you know anyone that was anyone would have a secret police file. So there's almost a, a sense that if you don't have one, you know perhaps you're not as important as you thought you were. You know, so uh, there's an, there's a, there's an investment in the potential or the the idea that somehow um, um, a, the fullness of of the truth of the period can be can be unearthed through the secret police archive. And this is something that scholars working in the archives constantly uh, um, uh, deal with or, or, or struggle with. Um, there's one other important thing I should mention in relation to the archives, which really is peculiar to the study of religions through the archives. You know, as scholars of religions, we're uh, aware of the material dimension of religion, the important material dimension of religion, and also the performative Um, quality of of, of religion. And I think a number of the scholars in the book um, understood this and and were able to draw on those archives as um, a a powerful record of this this dimension of, of, of religion, if you like. So the archives contain traces of the materiality of religion and the reports and the informers' reports and agents' reports and so on um, also evoke the performativity of religion uh, uh, during communism. So we have a different quality altogether um, that um, a scholar of religion is trained to, to sort of um, pick up on um, that you can discover in, in the files that we find in, in the archives. Um, so there are a number of things there that really make the Secret Police archives um, distinct, both from a general uh, perspective of historians working in the archives, but uh, especially for scholars of religion who are uh, working through through those sources. Uh,
2: and if I may add uh, a little bit um, to this, because there is an important uh, addition to make, that um, you know s- a number of uh, studies uh, in the volume really demonstrate the value of uh, you know working from the archives, but really connecting the archival materials with the actual communities. So so oftentimes um, there was this first archival research phase that uh, James explained so well, working in the hostile archives. But then this first phase was actually followed by a second phase when we... um, approached uh, those religious communities whose materials appeared um, in the archives and it was uh, our aim and our goal to conduct uh, some ethnographic work with them so so during the the course of this ethnographic uh, research uh, uh, which followed uh, the archival phase we contacted these religious communities um, in order to discuss their presence in the secret police archives and uh, to talk about uh, all the images and all the texts um, that we have found in the archives, so so in a way uh, we worked uh, from the archives, but then uh, actually arrived to the to the to the field to the so-called field. So this connection with the communities through their visual materials from the Secret Police Archives was really a methodologically critical part uh, of the research uh, behind um, some of the chapters um, of the volume.
0: Um, Thanks, Kinga. I'm really glad that you mentioned images as well as texts because your chapter in the volume looks at photographs that you found in the archive. Can you tell us a little bit about reading photographs? What can photographs tell us that we can't get out of written texts?
2: Yes, yes. Uh, thank you for this uh, question. Yes, so, so well, we have come across actually a, a lot of photographs in the secret police archives that uh, that were related to religions in some ways, and uh, and we uh, try to approach these photographs with this question in mind that. Um, can we use these images um, somehow going uh, beyond uh, serving as simple illustrations? And, um, well, we tried to uh, really ask whether um, these uh, photographs that were, you know, intended to capture reality, but from a very specific ideological perspective so you know asking these questions are these photographs at all capable of you know opening up new layers um of the past so uh in my chapter uh for the book uh, i worked on um, um doing uh, interviews with the so-called photo elicitation uh technique and this technique uh has not really been used in um, religious studies very often or very much, but uh, but I could um, find that so much of the benefits um, of this photo elicitation uh, method added to the actual interview interview process, and so um, when I was um, when I was uh, using um photo elicitation uh, the the purpose was not really to you know to refute uh these agent reports but uh but somehow to to produce uh, um kind of counter narratives a, narr- a, a narrative which is uh um, in a way liberated uh from the confines of the file. And, um, so, so I use these photographic images as a way to invoke and to elicit these new kinds of liberated, uh, narratives. And, uh, well, one of the important benefits of, uh, of photo elicitation I found was that, um, uh, you know, working with these photographs uh, really encouraged uh, a a different insight um, into uh, finding out stories. So not not just you know more or more in depth insights, but but these insights were different. So I could feel how photographs uh, really um, uh, encouraged talk that was. Uh, about uh, different things, um, issues or topics that I haven't even thought about uh, asking in the process. Um, and, well, another another huge benefit that I could uh, uh, observe throughout this photo elicitation process was that uh, by uh, looking at these photographs, um, we I could I could uh, get an immediate an immediate point of access uh, to the memories of uh, my interviewees. So so by looking at the images, uh, somehow uh, they they you know memories uh, and elements of memory instantly came back, and uh, and so through that process, I have learned uh, many. New information, and of course, uh, an, another important uh, feature of the photo elicitation interviews was that it really encouraged uh, uh, a certain type of talk that was uh, more emotional and uh, more uh, effective in a way. So, so, and this this aspect I found uh, crucial because when working with secret police materials, uh, which is, well, needless to point out, but by its nature, quite problematic, quite emotional. So, so with using the photo elicitation method, I really appreciated how, how these affective memories and emotions um, came up. Um, and of course, um, you know, the actually, working through the photos, um, enabled kind of, a, a collaborative, um, uh, uh, working, uh, relationship, uh, uh, with the interviewees, which again, um, you know, regarding the sensitive material in secret police files, it was, it was particularly important that, that somehow, um, this uh, research participant, uh, um, this power dynamic uh, between the interviewer and an interviewee, uh, the researcher participant power dynamic was kind of kind of uh, shifted uh, in a way. So I, I found these uh, elements of using um, images from the secret police files quite useful, but uh, then. You know, through the uh, re-engagement uh, with these lost images, because in most cases we talk about lost images, right? Because, because these images or these photographs were not known uh, by the actual community. And so um, by re-engaging with these lost images, um, photo elicitation could... Uh, could help uh, and ensure that uh, that really the research, when connecting with these communities, what not, was not really only about loss and not really only about uh, reliving the experience of persecution, but it somehow we could turn um, and shift the dynamics of the interviews into um, empowerment, into renewal. Into contestation, so so I found that uh, especially um, useful um, in that sense. Um, and of course, uh, what is the value of these images? So of course, uh, uh, it's it's obvious that uh, you know uh, these images from the Secret Police archives offer us uh, invaluable snapshots um, because they portray. And they really document and tell us about, in a visual way, about uh, really hidden forms of religious practices that we had, you know, really no idea. And, um, well, these photographs were actually all um, either confiscated or created by the secret police. And... um, and they eventually were used in the anti-religious operations. So uh, if we really think about it, um, these images really have this um, duality in them. So they, they contain this dual uh, character in a way because on the one hand, uh, they were used by the secret police and they were used as as uh, incriminating evidence against those religious communities. But on the other hand, they also, in a way, represent the memories and the uh, cultural patrimonies of these religious groups. so So in that way, um, this duality of these images are really um, interesting. Uh, if I uh, may add, uh, I think uh, I would like to call uh, attention um, to the photographs uh, in uh, that because they they really played an in, a central part in the uh, hidden galleries research project that I have mentioned earlier. and um, um, I would call attention to Uh, to the digital archives, which was one of the outputs uh, uh, of the project. And, uh, well, we have created this digital archive uh, in order to feature uh, all kinds of visual materials. So so there are uh, examples for crime scene photographs. There are examples for surveillance photographs. But uh, there are also... Um, images of uh, confiscated religious materials and uh, confiscated photographs of religious communities of their or or uh, images of their religious leaders, um, or we have images of brochures, uh, songbooks, prayer books, uh, icons, drawings, letters. So all of these are featured in the digital archives. Um, which is uh, um, really uh, designed uh, to to demonstrate uh, the kinds of materials that were produced by, but also about the religious underground. and um, and really just pointing to what are the the types of materials that can be found, in secret police archives uh, concerning religion, so so it was really uh, really a way of uh, of uh, giving uh, providing examples for you know what kind of uh, visual materials can be found in secret police archives. Well, for scholars, but also for faith communities that do not necessarily research in, in secret police uh, archives. So, so it was our way of, of pointing to the richness of the secret police archives and, well, therefore the name of the project, of course, Hidden, Hidden Galleries.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
0: Yeah. I, I love your digital archive. It's now my go-to place for every time I'm putting together a conference presentation on interwar Romanian religion, um, if I need to find some pictures to put up on the screen. It's it's an amazing treasure trove there. And you guys put together a book as well um, called Hidden Galleries, Material Religion in the Secret Police Archives in Central and Eastern Europe, which is more of a coffee table book and has some beautiful pictures um, from that archive, um, from the digital archive as well. But what, um, what your comment on photo solicitation reminded me of was that you guys are really, both of you, are anthropologists at heart. And so I, as a historian, when I come to these archives, um, I'm interested in something that is dead, is finished. Um, Most of these case studies focus on religious movements under state socialism, and state socialism collapsed 30 years ago. Um, Is this just an antiquarian study of the past, or does understanding the religious underground have relevance for the present, like for today as well?
3: Um, thank, thanks, Roland. Um, yeah, I mean, both Kinga and I are kind of ethnographers, anthropologists, but also but also uh, historians of, of religion. Um, but yeah. the, the, the point you make is is a really important one, and I think um, what Kinga was saying there about photo elicitation with contemporary communities um, kind of um, uh, puts a finger on it. Uh, anthropologists of religion have been interested in um, questions of uh, the dynamics of of religious change, uh, transmission of religion, um, schism within religion, um, secrecy practices, these are all kind of general themes that um, flow through the anthropology of of religion and and the anthropology of christianity in particular and so of course when we look back at at, um, um, the history of these communities um, it's, we, we're also concerned with understanding how that shaped the present. Um, some quite eminent anthropologists of uh, Christianity in Eastern Europe, people like Chris Han and Douglas Rogers, have pointed to the fact that you know we can't really understand the dynamics of contemporary the um, place of religion in contemporary society um, in the in the former Soviet republics or in in Eastern Europe unless we understand. The, the nature of uh, the position of religion during communism and especially how religion uh, was transmitted um, during that time. So we're really picking up on some, some universal themes there. The other critical dimension, as I said, you know, any kind of research in the secret police archives um, is political because, um, because of the political nature of the archives in post-communism. Um, and the, the authors in the book um, and the project team members, um, um, and I think I speak probably for, for all of them, have um, uh, a critical awareness of the ongoing marginalization processes um, and, and um, prejudice in society against um, religious others. And so um, the, the process of using Secret Peace archives, uh, using material religion in the archives, Photographic uh, um, elicitation techniques and 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 using those photographic sources, we also staged public exhibitions, doing ethnography with with communities in a kind of participatory research process. It's also about it's about the presence. It's about um, um, how um, you know the, the the political environment, the 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 religious field. Um, um, and um, uh, democratic and open societies uh, function. So even though I wouldn't say we're really um, doing advocacy um, um, scholarship, um, far from it, um, but certainly it's engaged scholarship in the sense that uh, we understand the impact that historical research and understanding the past has on uh, the shaping of contemporary contemporary um, public sphere.
0: Thanks, James. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and, of course, all of the movements in this book are persecuted religious movements. Um, what happens to religious groups when you persecute them? Are there patterns to how people respond to persecution?
2: Well, thank you for that question. Yes, so, of course, there is a, a broad, uh, a broader sociological literature on persecution and persecution of uh, in, in new religious movements in particular. Both in the past, both in in current times, um, and and of course looking at uh, how how they are uh, seen, how they are understood, um, how how they are handled by society, but we don't really look at these uh, patterns of persecution, uh, you know, sociologically. Uh, but I mean, if I if I should. Uh, Mention a few patterns or or, or tendencies, uh, if you like. One of them would certainly be uh, the really the, the creation of of new and creative responses uh, that uh, that came with uh, being being underground or, or that came with being hidden uh, religious groups and um and and the ways in which uh persecution has uh put them in a position that uh there was there was an essential need for for coming up with new practices in order to survive so so you know if you think about it just by uh creating the the actual underground which you know, as, as it was discussed earlier, it is not necessarily underground, underground, but, but so by, by actually creating those, uh, those safe spaces, it required a great deal of creativity and, you know, like for instance, uh, while, you know, some, some communities actually went underground, um, uh, and, and they, they You know, they they housed services and cellars. But then other communities, for instance, in Hungary, um, they have found these similar safe spaces um, by escaping to nature, for instance. So they were organizing excursions. And these excursions were actually, or, you know, small trips. uh, And these were actually uh, like covert ways of doing spiritual days or prayer groups, for instance. Um, and that was their way of really avoiding, um, the eye of the authorities. Or another example, if you think about, uh, you know, the lack of, lack of, uh, printing houses, um, and, and just think about the, the ways, uh, how these communities had to find uh, uh, solutions for really producing and spreading songs, books, uh, prayer books. Uh, and that has led to the creation of religious that materials. So, or for instance, when, when they were communicating uh, about the underground services or religious matters, uh, we find examples when um, when a community, so for instance, in this case, the Jehovah Witnesses community in Soviet Ukraine, they have developed a coded language actually to communicate with each other and to communicate with their religious center. So, so you so you see how uh, this aspect of uh, of creative agency uh, that was created due to the repression and due to the persecution of religions. And, and, um, and well, we, we found this very uh, fascinating uh, uh, topic. So we are trying to bring these practices into the center of our research. But, but I should also mention um, that there has been instances, um, and in one case, I personally experienced this, uh, when, uh, when repression and uh, surveillance of the secret police left something of a, a lingering distrust in a community that was under persecution. And so this distrust generally in the institutions and in the authorities, but this distrust was also expressed towards me as a researcher who wanted to enter and engage in an ethnographic uh, research with them. So, so a group which has been forced underground by the secret police surveillance, and then and then because of that, they had become quite secretive in their ways, but they remained quite secretive after 1989 as well. So, so the group was not uh, open to any collaboration with me as a researcher. So, so we can only, uh, you know, presume that this lingering loss of trust, and then the fact that their um, secretive practices remained, it just kind of, it's a coping mechanism But this is also, I think, uh, a very important pattern, if you like, um, that we need to consider when looking and dealing with the legacies of of persecution, I think.
0: (laughs) That's really interesting. The past is certainly not dead. Um, (laughs) In fact, it's still very much alive in some places. Um, James, you mentioned material religion before. What about food? How did do you find that in the um, in the archives? How did state socialist persecution change the way that food functioned in religious practices of these communities?
3: Um, oh, very much so, uh, Roland. The um, I'd, I'd, I'd say that food um, um, is kind of ubiquitously present there in in in, in many 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 files because um, part of the history of 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 communism, part of the history of of, of the Soviet regime and socialism um, was about um, lack, lack of resources, lack of um, food, uh, famine, collectivization. So, in the whole history of twentieth-century of, of communism, the relationship between the, um, you know the, the communist state's desire to, to generate abundance. But its inability and the, and the and the production of, of of a lack of of things, meant that attention often turned to food. Um, my own chapter in the book deals with a case from from 1950s and 1960s uh, Romania, which you know, Romania um, had experienced um in, in the in immediate post-war years um, food shortages and famine, and then there was a collectivization campaign which exacerbated the situation, um, rapid urbanization, which changed the patterns of of, of um, consumption and and, and 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 food production. Um, so in this context, which was not unique to, to Romania at all, um, the secret police paid particular attention to the ways that food was um, um, present within religious communities, um, because um, again we come to kind of. Kind of Kind of general ideas about um the relationship between you know um the peasantry the wealthy peasantry kulaks and the association with resistance to to collectivization um uh, accusations of of sabotage of of the state um religious communities were very much seen in um as part of this kind of total picture of the enemy the enemy is both kulak is religious reactionary is politically right-wing and so on um and so um when there was this intense focus on the on the need for food production and the state's control of food production um that's present in the archives and we we see that religious communities themselves had an interest in in ensuring that they had enough food uh for the community they would share those foodstuffs they would um you know practice a slightly more egalitarian or communitarian approach to 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 wealth and so on so in the chapter uh, uh, my chapter in the book um deals with the religious community that that um uh, as part of their practices to maintain their religious network um gathered foodstuffs special foodstuffs that were needed during the long fasting periods that that they engaged in um and um those foodstuffs were uh, you know um, transactional gifts if you like with the with the spiritual elders of the of of the community and they held held the community together in a certain sense but they were also able to use those foodstuffs against their oppressor against the enemy um, they had a very um, um, dualistic and apocalyptic mindset so the idea was that the foodstuffs that were brought in uh, to the community could be could be blessed um, and then redistributed, secretly in society to subvert the act- activities of the secret police or the police or, or the authorities. And so one of the very interesting practices they had was blessing of foodstuffs by the spiritual fathers that would then be secretly um, given to the wives of, of uh, acting officers or communist party members with the hope of using, uh, using them as a kind of spiritual uh, weapon of, of the weak. Uh, against um, against their oppressors, um, but this is a really fascinating uh, theme that I think there's a a, there's a lot of potential still um, in the Secret Police archives to explore this whole whole dynamic around um, food, and even beyond food, into general you know the 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 the, the lack of or abundance of um, um, you know the lack of products in the West, uh, in the East, and and, and, the, and the abundance of products in the West. And the sacred meanings that that um, that those became in, imbued with um, during 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 communism.
0: I really love that idea of of giving of blessing your enemy and giving your persecutor um, blessed food as a gift as a weapon of the weak. Um, it's beautiful. So you keep talking about religious communities but the vast majority of movements in this book, and there's a lot of different movements, but most of them are some sort of Christian. Um, Kinga, can you tell us a bit about the non-Christian groups that the book deals with?
2: Yes, uh, that's a a very good question. Uh, You know, why we cover almost only Christian groups in the the volume, and that's, you know, that makes me think as well. But of course... uh, uh one one uh answer would be uh, you know f- because uh in central and eastern europe um uh, i think uh christianity was seen as the main ideological uh, enemy uh, for communism and so so because christianity influ- influenced the thinking of most people but naturally of course uh um, we shouldn't say that other communities were, other religious communities were not under surveillance as well. So, um, so in the book, actually, uh, we offer, uh, a non-Christian example from Lithuania, um, where, where, um, uh, Rasa, uh, Pransky Vituete talks about, uh, the Hare Krishna devotees and, um. Uh, and she talks about how uh, how this Hare Krishna movement was received in in um, in Soviet Lithuania, and well how how some of some of the devotees, um, and how some of the leaders uh, of the movement of the Hare Krishna movement uh, were actually put into psychiatric uh, hospitals, and they had to um, endure. Uh, extreme uh, treatments um, and and so on.
0: Yeah, and um, one of the poison chalices of editing a collective volume is that you can never include everything that you want because even if you do, the the publisher comes back to you and says, well, you've got to cut out 100,000 words of your book. Um, and I really enjoyed that that Hare Krishna chapter. It was, it was fascinating stuff. Um, a lot's been written. Of course, this is not the first book on secret police under state socialism. Um, and we have books on the Securitate in Romania to the NKVD in Russia, the Stasi, the AVH, the Estebe, the Sargumas, and the SP. Um, what does studying the, the repression of religious movements tell us that other studies of secret police in general don't tell us? Like what's special about looking at religious groups um, and their relationship to... The repressive organs of state socialism?
3: Um, thanks Roland, yes. Um, well it really I, I would say first and foremost uh, in relation to the book, um, it was never really intended to be a book about the secret police independently of the other object of, the stud- of study. So our primary focus really is this, is this dialectic between the secret police and our religious communities and the religious underground. Um, so the relationship between repressive power and creative agency I think we're probably one of the first books the only book I can think of that actually tries to do that so when it's not a systematic study of the secret police or even a comparative exercise in understanding the kind of repressive methods and structures of the secret police what it does do is unpack um, multiple examples of um, the, the the way that the secret police interacted with, interfaced with, influenced and shaped, shaped religion. Um, whether that's from mass deportations to you know agent infiltration. And so the real contribution of the book is, is in that generative space between those two phenomena or or that, that that came into being because of because of that relationship between religion and, 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 and the secret police. Um, so unlike perhaps other books that focus on the secret police and the impact of the secret police, we have um, tried to steer away from um, focusing on the destructive dimension on on questions of victimhood and instead look more closely at Some of the things we've already talked about today, um, you know, the the, the creativity, um, um, kind of the generation of of diverse um, responses, um, um, the kind of reshaping of the religious landscape in that point of contact. One of the chapters that I think um, in the book deals with this very well by our Czech colleague, Andrei uh, Matejka, um, on the Czech Protestant church, um, is that he really explores the way that the secret police used their own experience of their operations against a community to generate um, instruction manuals and kind of education materials for the secret police. Um, but that this this material that they were generating and then using to train officers and to inform um, agents um, that were engaging with, with religion um, in Czech Republic, um, had, the, had, the, had the the power to um, ultimately to reshape the religious community's own self-understanding of what they went through during the communist era. To such an extent that, you know, in the contemporary uh, um, Czech Protestant church, Andrei talks about a real generational split between um, the understanding of what happened during communism? One of which is based on the image that the secret police produced of the church, which was one of dangerous resistance to communism. Whereas the younger generation, which is more open perhaps to critical historical research and questioning the past, sees that actually the church's uh, history, as historians can reveal it, was one of was was one of um, compromise and and um, and and engagement. Uh, with the communist regime, so that chapter really reveals to us the power that the secret police had um, unintentionally, because they, you know, they, the intention was in the creation of the image of the dangerous um, uh, 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 church and dangerous actors within the church was to eliminate the church altogether. Actually, has became a, a, a motor for um, producing a self-image that. Um, um, you know with the idea of kind of a, a heroism within the church and a martyrdom within the church that is proved to be a powerful uh powerful um powerful kind of, um factor in, in 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 the church today so um yeah it's 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 really an exercise the book is an exercise in in um you know engaging scholars that are specialists on the secret police with scholars who are specialists in the study of religions and seeing what what emerges in that um fertile kind of uh, space uh, uh, when we examine uh, examine the historical record.
0: So you're taking scholars of the um, secret police and you're putting them into conversation with scholars of religion, um, but you're also putting all those people together um, in conversation with each other across national boundaries. Um, this is very much a comparative volume. So you guys have case studies on Ukraine and Moldova, Lithuania, Hungary, Romania, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Yugoslavia. Um, I don't think I've missed any, but I probably have. Um, so there's a lot of similarities here in that every one of these places, you've got secret policemen investigating underground religious movements. Um, but what about the differences? Um, are there any that stand out? What did you learn by putting all of these stories side by side Um into one sort of between two covers.
2: Yes, thank you, Roland. So, as you say, uh, the similarities are, of course, quite obvious, and and well, that's primarily because of the, you know, having this ideological backdrop that created this anti-religious repression. But but of course, uh, the the cases and the chapters uh, uh, present. Uh, you know, certain dissimilarity. Um, well, one that really strikes uh, uh, is, for instance, in the timeline of the religious repressions. And basically, um, in that sense, um, if we think about the timeline of religious repressions, uh, basically all countries differ from one another. So, all chapters in that sense. But, but also, um, there are of course. Uh, uh, differences in the in the harshness and in the in the measures of uh, of persecutions as well, um, and and well also uh, these differences derive from the actual differences uh, that uh, that uh, are within church state relations, of course, and uh, and then so so the ways the churches are handling. Uh, or the churches were handled uh, by the state, and then and then the differences in the ways these measures were implemented uh, by the by the secret police. So uh, you know, uh, once we look at uh, countries with uh, with a single majority church like Poland or Romania, and then oppose them with countries with a more diverse religious field. Like Czechoslovakia or Hungary. Um, so, so these differences become uh, evident there again. And then of course uh, um, the differences also lie in the you know the original uh the originally different religious makeup of these countries and and you know the ways in which this somehow contributed to the different uh, church-state relations. Um, I think that's also quite uh, important. So, just to mention a case, for instance, uh, uh, a chapter written uh, 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 by Maciej Krzysztof um, uh, in Poland, which is which is not a diverse context religiously, but it is well. Demonstrated in uh, in uh, contribution, how these popular ways of uh, religion, popular ways of Catholicism, such as Marian visions, for instance, become really salient ways uh, to this to respond to this repression, and of course, uh, you know, such. So, so such cases are doesn't really appear in in a uh, in a different context, for instance. And then, well, another difference that might uh, come into mind is uh, is the ways how uh, how religious repression and how religious persecution is remembered, and how it's dealt with. So, for instance, we have two chapters. Uh, uh, from Romania, so Juliana Chindrea and Christian Vasila, um, and both of these articles, to some degree, address, you know, how how the politics of memory might arise from from a church claim, and uh, and in their respective uh, chapters, uh, they they touch upon issues on how in Romania uh, the Orthodox Church. Uh, uh, t- they talk about the Orthodox Church's attempts uh, to be seen as, you know, the sole victim of communism, and really by by uh, emphasizing these narratives of self-victimization. Um, I think that's that's important. So I mean, there are certainly different differences also um, in the ways. Um, and uh, and really to the degrees to which uh religious uh persecution is uh instrumentalized uh, uh, in memory politics as well so I mean there are many many differences of course in 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 the book as well
0: yeah, thank you very much kinga um, and thank you both of you for taking the time to talk us um, through what's in the book and some of the issues surrounding it. Um, I think if people want to find out more, they can go and read the book, um, but we should probably leave it there for today. Um, So thank you very much, both of you. Um, And I feel like I need to pick the book up again and and have a look (laughs) at it.
3: Uh, Thanks very much, Roland. Thank,
2: Thank you, Roland. Thank you.